Philippians chapter number 1. We're going to begin reading at verse number 12. The Apostle Paul says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now tonight, by the Lord's help, we're going to move through the entirety of the rest of chapter number 1, all the way down through verse number 30. But our lesson before us and the notes before us divides this, this portion of Scripture into three distinct areas. Uh, the verses that we just read uh, a moment ago deal with the prisoner, meaning Paul, and his purpose in life. And then verses 19 through 26 deal with the prisoner and his prospects. Even in Paul's situation that he was in, uh, he still knew that God had a plan for his life and was working effectually to bring that plan to pass. And then in verses 27 through 30, we find the prisoner in his pulpit. And Paul begins what is a long series, or I say long, it's not a very long book, but what is a, a extended series of exhortations, of commands, a sermon as it were, that he gives to the church at Philippi. So by the time we get down to verse number 27, he's moved past all of the introductory uh, material, and now he's really starting to, to chop wood. I mean, he's really starting to shut corn and let the church at Philippi know the reason and intent of his writing unto them. And this extends, by the way, from some other thoughts that we had uh, in last week's lesson. When you look at the notes, you'll find that same theme, the prisoner in this, the prisoner in this, the prisoner in this, uh, followed throughout. And uh, eventually we will break from that theme, but for now that's where our focus has been. So, Paul opens this passage of Scripture dealing with the prisoner and his purpose. And it begins with an astounding statement of perspective that Paul had about what he was going through. Now, I would remind you that at this moment, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. He's got shackles on the hand that is holding this pen. I mean, you can imagine that every time he scratches something out onto the parchment, he can hear the rattle of those chains. And whereas you or I would probably be sitting there complaining, grumbling, I know I would, complaining about my situation, that is not what Paul is doing. He instead details for us uh, a couple of, of really, or three really, really important thoughts uh, from his experiences. First, Paul related how the gospel was spreading through his imprisonment. When he gives his purpose in life, listen to how he says it, I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. Nothing else mattered to Paul. His freedom was not of paramount importance. His ability to travel, uh, his ability to plant churches and do the things that he desired to do while he longed to do those things, that was not the preeminent thing in his life. The main focus for the Apostle Paul was the gospel. As long as the gospel was being furthered, that's all that mattered. And he wanted the church at Philippi to rest easy in knowing 
that despite all of the forces of hell lining against him, despite false brethren and, and disingenuous preachers, despite the entirety of the Roman government allying against him to try to hinder and stifle his ability to be effective for Christ, that instead of those things falling out to the hindrance of the gospel, he says they rather have fallen out under the furtherance of the gospel. You know, we're getting ready to, and, and we really, we already have started this Track Today Challenge. And one of the things I love about the Track Today Challenge is that it, it rips away all of the excuses that a person may make uh, for not being soul-minded and evangelistic in their day-to-day life. Nobody's asking you to set aside a special time to go. Nobody's asking you to go and walk up and down dark or dangerous neighborhoods. Nobody's asking you to uh, equip yourself with uh, a, a myriad of theological defenses and arguments. All that you're being asked to do is once a day put a gospel track in someone's hand and tell them that the Lord loves them and ask them to read that. That's it. That's all that it is. Because I think that very often we allow excuses to consume ourselves and to, to uh, derive out of ourselves any ambition because there's always a good reason to put it off to another day. Paul instead looks at a situation where most people would easily make excuses. Most people would say, I'm not expected to do anything for the Lord in this situation. And Paul says instead, I am seeking day in and day out to be used of God to tell other people about Christ. He says, the gospel is spreading. I may be bound in prison, but as he said in another place, the word of God is not bound. And God is using even these confining circumstances to be able to be used effectively for him. I thought about what Paul wrote to the church at Rome uh, in Romans chapter number one. You know, uh, he had written that letter first. Romans was an earlier epistle. And... He writes to the church at Rome, who at that time he does not know personally. He knows some of the individuals, but he didn't plant the church at Rome. But he hears about these believers and he writes to them. And listen to what he says in Romans chapter number 1, verse 14. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul had always, he had for decades had plans to go to Rome. But you know, sometimes God's plan and our plan are different. Paul says, through my imprisonment, the gospel is spreading. God is reaching hearts and minds and souls through the gospel. He reveals to us that the chains that were around his feet and around his wrists were divinely planned. It was not in Paul's plan to be imprisoned in Rome. It was in Paul's plan to preach the gospel. But God, beautifully, and some might say tragically, but Paul would say providentially, sets forth a method and means of him being able to share the gospel with the people at Rome, even though it was not the way that God intended. You know, I found this to be the case. That oftentimes the most potent and meaningful and impactful divine appointments that God has set for me have been places I would have never gone myself. Have been situations I would have never put myself in. There are times God has allowed me to be a witness to the gospel and share the truth of Christ with someone in a place I was very comfortable with. But most of the time when God uses me, it's in places I would have never thought to go. 
when I pulled into the gas station, I didn't have the gospel in my mind. When I went into that grocery store, I was in a bad mood and a bad spirit. And I wasn't in in any kind of, of condition really to be being used. But God set up a divine appointment, smoked my heart, smoked my spirit, got me in a right mindset, and used me to share the gospel. You know, it's not always the way we plan. But if we yield ourselves to God's plan, we'll find that He will use our every circumstance for His glory and for His honor. Paul says, these chains around my wrists I did not pray for, I did not ask for. But God is using these to make my testimony more meaningful and more available for the church at Rome. And I'm able to reach people that I could have never reached. Listen to what he says. Not only does he denote that by means of his bonds, and I'm kind of trying to go back and and mention some things in the outline here before I move too far past him. He related how the gospel was spreading, number one, by means of his bonds. And he says that his chains were divinely planned. But look at verse 13. He also notes that his chains were distinctively productive. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. When he uses the term palace there, it's the Greek word praetorium. And that's probably not a terribly unfamiliar word to to you. You've probably heard of the Praetorian Guard. It was an elite group of fighters and military men in Rome. And they were usually either used to lead men into battle or for official responsibilities and duties there in the city of Rome itself. These were very powerful, very influential, and very seasoned soldiers. And Paul was set under the Praetorian Guard. Every few hours they would bring another soldier in and shackle him to Paul's wrists and to Paul's ankles. And Paul essentially says this, there are people that I'm able to reach through my chains, through my imprisonment, that I could have never reached otherwise. I promise you this, if a little uh, insignificant, uh, unimpressive Jewish missionary was to walk the streets of Rome and approach a member of the Praetorian Guard and to ask them for their attention while he shared with them about his God and his Savior, that guard probably would never have paid attention he would have probably treated him as, as some kind of, uh, you know, uh, incapacitated person or somebody uh, that was not in their right state of mind and brushed them to the side. But here they had to listen to him. It's a good reminder, especially, by the way, as folks get to a place in life where they physically are not able to go the way they once could. It's a good reminder that, listen, when you can't go to the mission field, God's able to bring the mission field to you. The palace that he speaks of is these influential soldiers. Later on, evidently it was effective because in chapter 4 and verse 22 of this book, he tells the church at Philippi that all of the saints of Caesar's household salute them. Evidently, it was not a fruitless endeavor. Paul had been winning soldiers to the Lord and and winning officials and and staff members in Caesar's household and in his royal government to Christ. And an impact was being made. It said that when the Roman historian Tacitus uh, wrote in 64 A.D., he noted that when Nero fired up his persecution heavily against the Christians in Rome, that he there were, quote, vast multitudes of Christians in that city. Wonder where they came from. Wonder who won them to Christ. Now, I'm not saying Paul won all of them. But I do believe that undoubtedly he contributed, and, and it is without question that the people that he wanted the Lord went on to win other people to the Lord. 
So much so that even a pagan, even a godless historian of of that day looked and noted what a vast multitude of Christians were in that place. Paul said, through my imprisonment, I'm able to reach people I could never have reached otherwise. And it just might be that those circumstances that you didn't ask for, that you didn't pray for, that maybe you prayed and begged God to take away, are the very means through which God is able to reach people that you would have never come across otherwise. He says the gospel is spreading by means of his bonds, but not only by means of his bonds, but by means of his brethren. Look at verse number 14. He says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, he says there's some folks that my imprisonment has created a new climate for them. They're getting stronger. They're getting bolder. They're beginning to testify and witness for the Lord, whereas never they did before. Notice the number of those now witnessing. He says many of the brethren in the Lord, many of the brethren in the Lord are waxing confident. What happened? They began to see Paul. Standing strong, testifying, witnessing, being bold in the Lord. And they said, if he can do it, I can do it. The nature of their witnessing, he says, was bold and he uses the term without fear. Without fear, they're sharing the truth of Christ. I've always been struck. There's an instance in the Old Testament where the children of Israel, under the uh, leadership of Saul, their king, the army was in camp against the Philistines. And uh, you've probably read this if you're a student of the Bible. But the Bible tells us that Paul, or excuse me, Saul, had his army and his garrison and was uh, sitting up under a pomegranate tree in uh, Gilboa. And the battle wasn't in Gilboa, but he was in Gilboa. And he was sitting up there afraid to go down and fight the Philistines. Their army was completely outnumbered and there was no chance of them winning the battle. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, takes his armor bearer and he looks over at that fellow and says, You know, who knows what the Lord would do if we're willing to fight? And him and his armor bearer go down and challenge the Philistines and they begin to fight against the Philistines. Uh, pretty soon, Saul and his forces hear the ruckus going on down in the valley, and they take a head count. They said, who is that down there fighting the Philistines, slaying them, 20 to an acre? Who is that down there that's winning the battle for us? And they take a head count and realize it's Jonathan and the armor bearer. The Bible says this, that there were three groups of people that when they saw Jonathan and his armor bearer fighting the battle... That, that came out to fight alongside of him. One was uh, Israelites that were in the camp with Saul. People that were complacent, people that were cowardly, people that were fearful. But when they saw someone else doing it, they said, you know, I can do it too. There were also, the Bible says, Israelites that had hid themselves in the caves. They had completely disconnected from the battle. They had ran from it. They were unwilling to face it. But when they see Jonathan down there, they say, if he can do it, we can do it. You know, the Bible even says that there were some Jews that had crossed over to the side of the Philistines, that were on on enemy territory and and were wearing enemy colors, that when they saw Jonathan and his armor bearer winning the battle, they said, well, maybe we're on the wrong side of this, fellas. And they threw down their Philistine colors, picked up their sword and shield, and started fighting against the Philistines. I'm saying this, there's no telling who God might use you to encourage. There's no telling how many people need someone in their life that like Paul was for the people at Rome, was willing to stand and show them that even in the hardest of circumstances, people can be one to Christ and God can use your situation to share the gospel. He points to a new climate. And in verses 15 through 18, I want you to notice this noble contrast. And I'll say just a quick word about it, really more of explanation than exhortation, but I want you to notice it. 
He says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. It says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And what's he saying here? There's a few. I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to give you the commentator's opinion. But notice first off that Paul discerned the difference between those that were genuine and those that were not. He says some are preaching the gospel of goodwill. That's saying a word that's used when the Bible says, uh, gives the enunciation of Christ's birth and says, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. In other words, some of the people that were sharing the gospel were doing so because they wanted to see men come to Christ and they had a love for sinners and they had the right reasons and the right motives. But Paul also says that some are preaching Christ even of envy and strife. He says they want to add affliction to his bonds. Now, as I can read it, there's basically about two or three understandings of this. And I'll tell you my opinion about it. I believe what's being said here by the Apostle Paul is that there were some that were essentially disassociating themselves from Paul and painting him as a radical and claiming that as they preached the gospel of Christ, that they were who were truly representative of Christianity, but that Paul was a nut job, that he was a radical, that he was some kind of fanatic. And they were essentially seeking to put the pressure of persecution and public hostility on Paul instead of on themselves. That's my opinion. The commentator that I've been reading after claims that what he believes is that the whole reason they were preaching was just to bother the Apostle Paul. When he says affliction there, it has the idea of making the chains tighter. It denotes the chafing that a prisoner would experience under long imprisonment. And basically what the commentator claims is that they thought that them walking free and preaching the gospel would bother Paul, would annoy and irritate him and discourage him, and that they derived joy out of the thought that he would gain discouragement uh, from their liberty and from their uh, ability to preach the gospel. I, at the end of the day, the Lord will straighten me and the commentator out, we're probably both wrong. But uh, I think there's no question that as you live for the Lord, you're going to run across people sometimes that are not going to like that you're witnessing. They're not going to like the way that you witness. I shared, I can't remember if it was Sunday or when it was, but I remember my pastor used to always say uh, that somebody came to him one time and said, I don't like the way that you witness to people. And uh, he asked them this question. He said, well, how do you witness to people? And they said, well, I don't. And his reply was, well, I like my way better. (laughs) A lot of wisdom there. It's always the people not doing the work that are quickest to criticize. And there will be people that seek to discourage you. Paul discerned the difference and he discussed the difference. He recognized it. He's not got blinders on. He He knows there's some people out there that are not genuine. He knows there's some people out there that we're not preaching a false gospel, but we're falsely preaching the true gospel. So in other words, the truth of the gospel is being presented, but the motives or the methods of the person giving it was not necessarily scriptural and was not necessarily as genuine as it could or should have been. What's Paul's reply? He says, what then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And he says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul discerned the difference, discussed the difference, and then he dismissed the difference. Now, let me make a clear distinction here. Paul is not encouraging the preaching of a false gospel. In fact, when he wrote to the church at Galatia, 
he said in very, very bold language that uh, the judgment of God would be upon the person that preaches a false gospel. He said, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let, let God put a curse upon that person that preaches any gospel other than the true gospel. So Paul's not taking a soft position against heretics or apostates or reprobates here. Instead, what he's recognizing, though, is that in this world there's going to be people that preach the gospel that do things differently than you do or differently than I do. And I don't think what he's saying is an endorsement of them, but I think what he's saying is a resilience of spirit of himself that he's not going to allow people doing the wrong thing to derail him from doing the right thing. And he's going to trust those people to God and trust that God has the ability to deal with them and he's just going to keep his eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone the other day, and I won't get into all the details about it, but the discussion turned to someone that I think is very much like this individual that Paul has in mind. I don't know that I would call this person a false prophet, but I certainly think that their spirit and their motives and their methods in ministry are very, very questionable. And I made the comment to this preacher whenever the conversation turned to that person. They got, you know, a couple little comments were made, and I said, you know, I said, I'm just so tired of it. It's all exhausting and distracting. Let me tell you something. You can burn up a lot of your energy worrying about what other people are doing. You can burn up a lot of your energy being tore up about what other people are doing. And I'm not saying they're right. And I'm not saying there's not a place where we must stand publicly and vocally against wrong. But I am saying that we can spin our wheels running around trying to be everybody's policeman instead of being the servant that God has called us to be. Paul related how the gospel was spreading, and then he rejoiced that the gospel was spreading. He said, hey, I rejoice. And then he has to, it's like he has to remind himself. Remember, Paul is not a man without backbone. Paul is somebody that stood, withstood Peter to the face because he was to be blank. I, I think that Paul was a man of like passions, like we are, like Elijah was. And I think it, it bugged him that there were people doing this. But you know what he does? He doubles down on his flesh, and he says, I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. See, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think he's telling them that. I don't think he's telling you that. I think he's telling him that. And he's reminding himself that he can't allow himself to be distracted from that grand purpose, which is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see the prisoner and his purpose. It was the gospel. Then I want you to notice the prisoner and his prospects. Look at verse number 19. He says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul says, this thing ain't going to derail me. God's going to use this to bring about His salvation in my life. Now, I'd remind you that the term salvation in Scripture is not vague, but it is multidimensional. It does have a lot of different understandings. Um, and, uh, for instance, a lot of times in the Bible it means the new birth. It means being born again. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, there's other times when the term saved means, uh, like for instance, when Paul said about women, that they would be saved through childbearing. Now, you and I both understand that just because a person has a child, that doesn't make them a Christian. And uh, there's a lot of uh, mothers and a lot of good mothers in this world that don't know the Lord as their Savior. They're lost in their sins and, and in their ignorance. So what did Paul mean when he said that the woman will be saved through childbearing? Well, it means that there was a certain function and role and impact that God had designed for her when He created her. 
she was created. There was always a structure in the home. Uh, but never did there have to be the uh, hierarchy that exists now in the home. The hierarchy in the home exists for two reasons. One, so that Christ's love for the church can be manifest. So that we have a fit example to somehow connect His love for the church in our hearts and minds. But also, here's why. Because we're broken, sinful people. We're not always in agreement with each other. There has to be leadership in the home. and uh, Men are not leaders because they're always right. They're just leaders because God structured it and constructed and commanded it to be that way. And so, in the structure of the home, the woman is able to reclaim that grand purpose and impact and power and influence through the bearing of children. A mother is literally able to turn the fate of nations with the way that she raises her child. So, in that sense, she's saved through childbearing. So, the term salvation can mean a lot of different things in Scripture. And it always means to save something, but it doesn't always mean to save a person's soul. Sometimes it means to save their body from peril. Sometimes it means to save their uh, purpose in life, as we just discussed. And I think in this passage, it's talking about saving Paul's testimony and circumstances. I wrote it down this way. Let me say it like this. When he talks about salvation, he's talking about his public witness, his effectiveness, and his vindication. Let me say it this way. Paul, his greatest fear at this moment in life was that he would not be the witness he needed to be when he stood before Nero. Over and over again, he talks about how that they should pray for him, that when that moment comes, that he's awaiting his appeal, that he's awaiting to stand before Nero, And he had committed in his heart when he stood before that wicked and violent emperor to be a fit testimony for Jesus Christ. I think what he's saying is here he is in prison and he desires to be the right witness and desires to have the right testimony. And he knows even though there's people trying to slander his name, that through the prayers of his friends and through the Spirit of God, he would in that hour be able to stand and to be able to be the right kind of influence. He looks at this, and I want you to notice, I mean, this is a man that is facing execution in his mind. He does not know if it's going to come now, if it's going to come later. By the time he writes to Timothy, evidently the the appeal had passed, the trial had passed, and he knew it was settled and sealed that he was getting ready to die. Because he tells Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. But in this moment, he's awaiting another opportunity to plead his case. And instead of looking at that fearfully, notice how he faced that prospect. Number one, he faced them prayerfully. Look at the buoyancy of his optimism. Verse 19, he says, I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When he uses the term know, it means absolute knowledge, settled conviction. Paul, in other words, was saying, and by the way, he would go on to say later that he he believed, he knew that his abiding in the flesh would be needful for the church at Philippi. He goes on to say that he, he believes that he is going to stay with them. And uh, he says in verse 25, where I was looking, having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you. The term for knowledge there is sort of subjective. It's sort of intuitive. He's saying this is what I believe is going to happen. But when he says, I know this shall turn to my salvation, it, it's spoken with settled conviction, with authority. And he's saying, I know no matter what happens, that if you'll pray for me, and if I'll be obedient to the Spirit of God, that in that moment, I'll have the right things to say. Now, he was facing Nero. You and I face our neighbors. If Paul could face Nero and say, I know God will give me the words when the time comes. 
and I know He'll give me the right disposition and the right spirit about it. And can't we say, I know that in that moment, when the time comes, God will give me the answers that I need to give people. God will give me the words that I need to speak. Notice the buoyancy of His optimism, but notice the basis of it. Not because He was so great, but why? Two things, the supplication of friends and the Spirit of God. He said, I know there's folks praying for me, and I know the Lord's Spirit will help me. I know that God will give me the wisdom when the time comes, not because I have the wisdom in and of myself, but because I know the Spirit of God has a vested interest in me being able to effectively share the gospel. You know, when you share the gospel, when I share the gospel, you know why we can have confidence? We're doing God's business. He has a direct interest in seeing it go well. Now, that does not mean we can't get in the flesh and try to depend on ourselves. Paul doesn't say, I know this because I'm perfect. But he says, I know it in as much as there's people praying for me, and I know it in as much as if I obey the Spirit of God, He doeth all things well. He'll do it right. He'll say the right thing. Everybody in this room that has ever shared the gospel on a fairly semi, even sporadic basis has experienced that moment when you walk away from a conversation and think of six million things you wish you had said. I wish I had said this. I wish I had said that. I wish I could have remembered that scripture. I wish I could have remembered that reference. I wish I had turned the argument or the discussion or whatever you want to call it this way or that way. And we begin to second guess ourselves. Can I just remind you that the Spirit of God has the ability. If He can bring that sin to your mind that you had completely pulled your, the wool over your eyes about, if He can bring something to your mind that you're trying to forget, then you better believe He can bring something to your mind that you need and are trying to remember. Paul says, I, I'm prayerfully knowing that I'll be able to be the kind of witness that I need to be. Look at verse number 20. He says this, According to my earnest expectation, and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He faced these prospects prayerfully, but he faced them positively. Notice his determination. He says, I know that no matter whether it's through my life or death, I have earnest expectation that God will be able to bring glory to himself out of it. The term earnest expectation here is found only one other place in your Bible. And it's when Paul himself uses the term when he talks about the earnest expectation of creation. In Romans uh, chapter number 8, he talks about how creation groaneth and travaileth together until now and waiteth for the adoption of sons. And he, the phrase has the idea of looking towards something with your hand out. When my little boy walks up to me and says, Cookie? He does that with earnest expectation. He ain't sticking his hand out because he thinks Daddy's going to say no. Mama might say no, but Daddy ain't going to say no, and he knows that. And that's why he sticks that chubby little hand out there. He is anticipating receiving something. Paul says, I am anticipating that God is going to bring glory out of my life if I'll just be obedient to Him. He says, by life or by death. Something I thought was interesting, the commentator mentioned a missions organization that he once came across whose logo was an ox. And on either side of that ox was a plow and an altar. And it had these words underneath it, ready for either. Ready for either. That's why an ox lives, isn't it? either to plow or to be sacrificed. And an ox is a beast of burden. It is a beast of servitude. And just like that ox, those missionaries said, by life, by death, by the plow, by the altar, 
or ready, whatever it may be. What does he want? He wants Christ to be magnified. means, by the way, to make larger or to bring closer. Paul said there's a, there's a great big God and His Son Jesus Christ that has a great big love for this world, but they can't see it. They don't know anything about it. But if in some way I can be the telescope whereby God's vastness is made apparent to them, that's what I want to be. If in some way I can be the microscope that draws the life of Christ before men's eyes and shows them how much He loves them and how He can change them, He says, that's what I want. He said, my great desire in life is just that men might see Christ more through my life. He said, I want Him to be magnified. Notice His determination, but notice His discernment. It says in verse 25 or verse 21, in verse 20 He said, by life or by death. And then He tells us what that means to Him. Verse 21, He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He makes a statement about this life. What does He mean when He says to live is Christ? He's saying that Christ is the purpose of this life. I live so that I might glorify Him. Christ is the power of this life. The only way I can be a witness is by letting the life of Christ live through me, by my obedience to the Spirit of God. And He says that Christ is the pleasure of this life. As long as I live, I live in fellowship with Him. And as long as I live, I live to be to His pleasing. He said, if after this trial I'm set free, glory to God, to live as Christ. But he's also come to terms with the prospect about that life, the life to come, because he says to die is gain. Paul had nothing to lose when Nero's executioner came calling for him. Why could Paul say to die was gain? I think he's got in mind particularly that he gained entrance into heaven, that he would gain the presence, the explicit presence of God that he would sit at his feet. But I think he's also, remember, he wrote to the church at Corinth and said that after this life we're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and all of our works are going to be set on fire. There'll be wood and hay and stubble and there'll be gold and silver and precious stone, meaning there'll be things that are temporary and things that are meaningless, but there'll be things that are eternal and things that are valuable. Paul says on that day our work will be tried by fire. I think Paul was able to say to die is gain because he had said to live is Christ. When you say to live is pleasure, you can't really say to die is gain. When you say to live is to make money, you can't really say like Paul did to die is gain. When you say to live is to gain prominence or power or influence, you can't really say, at least not to the extent that Paul did, that to die is gain. But when to live is Christ, you better believe when the moment comes... To die will be gain. He faced them positively, but also he faced them preparedly. Look at verse number 22. He says, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. The word what there is an old English word. You say, well, preacher, should it be took out of there? No, we should just learn it. Amen. If we can do that with the instructions in the stereo, I believe we can do it with God's Word. What it means is to declare, to proclaim, to state a position. And he says, what I desire, what I long for, what I choose, he says, I'm unwilling to say. He says, I know that God has His plan and His perfect will, and that's what I want. And he offers two different possibilities. Both of them are blessed. The first is the blessedness of a fruit-bearing life down here. 
He says, if I live in the flesh, and he's not talking about carnality or sinfulness, but he's talking about physical flesh. He's saying, if I continue on living, this is the fruit of my labor. I'm able to go on and serve the Lord and continue living for Him. He acknowledges, too, that there is a far better life up there. He says, not only uh, to live in the flesh is the fruit of my labor, but he says to depart and to be with Christ is far better. It's far better. You know, we might say it like the songwriter said when he pinned down these words, I am a winner either way. Paul says, the devil and the world and death can gain no victory over me because no matter what God does, I'm a winner. He faced them preparedly, but then he faced them practically. Look what he says in verse number 24. He says, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. I like how the commentator described it, that Paul has, has, has exalted and elevated and launched himself into the highest of glories as he thinks about heaven and the presence of God and loved ones that had gone on before. And what glory that would be to be in God's presence, to be with Him. I didn't mention this a moment ago, but when he uses that word desire, epithumia, you know what it means? It means lust. Lust. Paul, when he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, it's almost like he's saying, I'm lusting for heaven. Lusting for heaven. He says, there's just a craving in my soul to be with the Lord. We noted a couple weeks ago in a sermon that, you know, the Spirit of God, He appeared in the likeness of a dove. He could have took any form He wanted, but He appeared like a dove at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. And I think that's very fitting, because a dove has a strong homing sense. And you know what happens when a person gets born again? The Spirit of God takes up residence in their heart. And like a dove, it turns their face towards home and gives them a great desire to be with the Lord. Paul said, I'm lusting, I'm longing, I'm desiring for heaven. He'd been there before. Now, I found this, that lust is all the worst if we have tasted or experienced something. Paul says, I got a taste of heaven. I was there. I saw unspeakable things. He said, I've never quit thinking about it. It tore me up so bad, the Lord had to give me a thorn in the flesh just to keep my feet on solid ground. Because I've always wanted to go and be with Him. And as He has elevated His soul and spirit to the highest of planes, you can imagine that He shifts His hands. And here's that chain rattle again. And in a moment, His mind is brought back to His current situation, to the letter that He's pinning the little body of believers at Philippi and the strife that they were experiencing. He probably thought about the church at Galatia, wondered if they had ever fixed that problem with legalism. Probably thought about the church at Corinth and wondered if they ever did restore that fellow that fell into sin. Probably thought about the church at Colossae and wondered if they ever did get grounded and throw all those Gnostics out of the church. And it's almost like he says this, you know, I'd sure love to go on, but there's so much work to do here. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. He thought about the untold millions, even in that very uh, city that had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He thought about the battles and spiritual warfare that were raging. He thought about the churches that needed his prayers and his letters of encouragement and instruction. And he said, there's just too much work to be done here for me to run off and leave now. I'll tell you something, there's a work for us to do. There's a work for us to do. How shall they hear, Paul says in the book of Romans, without a preacher? How shall they believe in Him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How 
shall they preach except they be sent. There's a great vast work to do. I love more than anybody to just think about heaven and shout it out. Me and Dad were out making visits today and we got riding home and talking about heaven and seeing everybody and what it's going to be like. And I mean, man, I just I thought that little Kia was just going to take flight. But there's too much work to do here. If it's the will of God, by the clouds or by the clouds, I'm surrendered to His will. But there's too much work to be done here. To go running off and thinking that I can just leave of my accord. Notice his assessment. And then notice his assurance. Look at verse 25. He says, And having this confidence, I know. Again, subjective knowledge. He's saying, I feel this. I have a peace about this. He says, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Why did he believe the Lord was going to leave him there? He did not have scriptural authority to say it when he said, I know. But he says the Lord gave him a peace that this would not be his end at this moment. He looks at the reality, but then he notes the reasons why. He says in verse number 25, that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. For your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He said, I have two reasons I think God's going to leave me here. One, to help you grow. To help you grow. This life, you reach places and seasons and ages where it becomes arduous even to face the world. You hurt all the time. You're sickened by the swirling chaos of this world around you. The, the, the foundation, the floor under your feet is always spinning. And it's so easy to want to go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. Paul said, I'm lusting to go to heaven. I'm longing to go to heaven. But let us never get so discouraged and despondent with this life that we miss that there's still a work for us to do. There's people that need us to help them grow. Not only for the furtherance of their faith, but for the joy of their faith, for their rejoicing. He says he was going to be left here to help them grow, but also to make them glad. Because there were folks that needed encouragement from him. Listen, you may, you may come, uh, you may be at a season in your life where you say, Preacher, I'm not much good for anything. I can't do what I wish I could. You know what you can do? You can be an encouragement. You can be an encouragement. If you're here tonight, then you probably, the majority of the time, can find yourself in the house of God. It encourages your preacher when you're there. You can pray for people that need prayer. Nothing encourages me or most Christians more than hearing someone say, I've been really praying for you this week. You can have a joyful spirit and an encouraging disposition. Tell people that you love them. Remind them that the Lord loves them. Tell them you appreciate them. I'm saying that if that was reason enough for Paul to be willing to stay, and I, you may have some hard circumstances, but I would just venture a guess that there ain't nobody in this room that has as hard of a situation as Paul had. Say, so, well, preacher, he was in prison. I'm facing things that uh, could take my life, or I'm facing things that make living hard. And I remind you, Paul had a thorn in the flesh too. I'm not scolding you. I'm not fussing at you. I'm just saying that if that was enough to make Paul say, I'll stay if God can use me in this way, then surely God has a purpose in our life too. And surely we can find the strength to be used of the Lord like Paul did. So we've seen the prisoner and his purpose and the prisoner and his prospects. But finally in closing, let me just say a couple words about these last three, four verses in this chapter. I want us to listen to the prisoner as he climbs in his pulpit 
and exhorts the church at Philippi. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He urged them to be three things, and the first is found in the beginning of this verse. He, he Initially, what he first asked them is to be unyielding in the battle. And he uses a Bible term, the term conversation. And our modern understanding of that term when we say conversation is dialogue. But what it meant when the Apostle Paul pinned it down and what it means in your Bible is your conduct, your way of life. And it bears very closely with the idea of your citizenship, your way of life, how you conduct yourself and your manner of living. What he says is make sure that your citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. Make sure your conduct is a Christ-like conduct. Make sure, and remember, he's writing this to a, a church at Philippi where paganism is rampant, where the culture and influence of Rome is bearing upon them like a heavy weight. And he says, just make sure that in all this you don't lose sight of where your citizenship lies. You know, every single believer has dual citizenship. We have human citizenship, but we also have heavenly citizenship. We have a citizenship in this world, but our greater citizenship is the citizenship in heaven. And what Paul is saying is make sure that you don't give an inch. Make sure that you don't get so focused on this world that you give it preeminence and give it a right of way above your heavenly citizenship. Uh, we got to live in this world as long as the Lord wants us here. And I think Paul would hardly agree with that. He was ready to go home, but he says, you know, God has me here instead. He knows that we have to live in this world, but he doesn't want us, though we have to live in this world, to be of this world. You probably have to work a job. You probably have uh, earthly responsibilities. And it's not a sin for any of those things. But it is a sin when we allow those things to become our primary purpose. The reason we get out of bed, the the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us, the thing that consumes us, instead of the will of God and the work of God in our life. Paul says, be unyielding in the battle. Not only that, he encourages them to be undivided in the battle. Now this would have meant a lot to the church at Philippi, because if there was anything that prompted this little letter, it was a conflict between two women in the church. I can't really pronounce their names correctly, but I'm going to call them Syntyche or Syntyche and, uh, and a woman named Euodius. I'll get to heaven and they'll correct me on both of those, I'm sure. But um, these women evidently had some kind of conflict and it was beginning to cause discord in the church. And so before Paul, and by the way, by the end of this little letter, he's going to name names. That's how I knew their names. He, he's going to name names, but over and over again, it's like he gives these ladies. He did it in last week's lesson too, earlier. When he talked about grace and peace and talked about uh, them having the right spirit, it's like over and over again he gives little opportunities for these ladies to get things right before they read to the end of the letter. It's almost like you can imagine that they're all gathered around a table somewhere. Hey, we got a letter from Brother Paul. He's in prison. And he wrote us a letter. Let's all gather around and read it. And here's this one lady sitting on this end of the table and the other one's sitting way down there. Her with her group, her with hers. And there's the poor preacher in the middle. That's where he's always at. Reading this letter from the Apostle Paul. And as he reads through this thing, you can imagine that every time they hit one of these little ones, the preacher looks over at Yodius. Looks over at the other lady, however you pronounce her name. You can imagine when they hit that, she looks at her. She looks at her. 
And it's like Paul gives him opportunity after opportunity to stand up and say, you know, preacher, can you just wait for a minute? i got something on my heart. There's, we, I've had some problems with this dear sister, but I've been wrong. And I've had a wrong attitude and a wrong spirit. Gives them opportunity after opportunity to get that thing settled before they ever come across their names at the close of this epistle. And he says, listen, as you fight this battle, make sure that whether I come and see you or whether I just hear about you, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let me make a statement particularly about churches. I'm not talking about movements. I'm not talking about evangelists and missionaries and great vast organizations. I'm talking about Wall Ridge. Or I'm talking about your church. There's too much work to be done for us to let foolishness get in the middle of us. Too much work. Ain't no telling how many people die and go to hell while we're working out our issues with each other. Too much work to be done. Have you ever before started to get sick and thought to yourself, I just cannot get sick right now. I have too much to do. Your body begins to ail and you say, I just cannot. I have too much to get done. We're the body of Christ. And I sort of believe when those moments happen that the head thinks... Who's the head? That's Christ. I think the head probably thinks we have too much work to get sick right now. We have too much work to do for the spleen to not agree with the kidney. We have too much work to get done for the right hand to not agree with the left hand. We can't have a day like this. This is the last day. This is the last opportunity. There's too much work to get done. We need to be striving together. I know it's hard sometimes. And I'm not, listen, I'm not being sarcastic or cute when I say that. I know it's hard sometimes being in a church body, loving each other, bumping into each other, getting our issues all over each other. I get that. That's hard sometimes. And sometimes it takes a lot of grace and a lot of peace for us to put those things aside. But I, I implore you, and I invoke our high and a holy calling, that there's too much work. And by the way, if there's any fussing going on in our church right now, I don't know about it. And let's just leave it that way. But, so I mean, there ain't nothing prompted this. I'm just, the Bible is what prompted it. Here we are in Philippians. And let me, let me let the holy inspired word of God prompt us to be reminded there's too much work to be done for us to let the body be sick right now. To be undivided in the battle. And then finally, he exhorts them to be unafraid in the battle. I'm just going to say a quick word. I'm not even going to expound this. You've got your notes in front of you. But he says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. What did he mean when he said that? He said, when you stand courageously in the face of persecution, it will enrage your persecutors. You know why? Because your courage reminds them of their condemnation. There's no greater testimony of the veracity of, and truthfulness of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ than the ability for Christians to withstand in the day of persecution. You can go through and read Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you go buy one, buy as thick a one as you can find because they've been cutting stories out of them for 200 years. But you can read through Fox's Book of Martyrs. And how could you ever read through that and walk away from that believing anything other than a supernatural God sent His supernatural Son to die for lost sinners and to supernaturally change their lives? And that when they die, they die with supernatural grace. A lost man, he dies floating oaths and curses at his oppressor. 
But the Christian, when they face persecution, they can do so with dignity and grace and Christ-likeness. That's the difference. That's the power of a Christ-like testimony in the face of opposition and persecution. He said they hate it because to them it's a token of their perdition. But to you of salvation and that of God, it reminds them that this thing they're persecuting is of the Lord. It's what it did for Paul, by the way. i just insert that in there before we move on. It's what it did for Paul. Many, many years later, Paul talked about that glow on Stephen's face that he saw. Paul was a young man at that time, up and coming in the Sanhedrin, and willing to do whatever dirty work that that group of men desired in persecuting and hounding and murdering Christians, that he might advance himself in their ugly politics. And there that young man stood, holding the coats of the men that hurled stones at Stephen. And when Stephen looked at him with an angelic glow from another world and said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Years later, Paul talked about that. The effect that it had on him. He talked in vivid detail about that glow on Stephen's face and about that testimony. That stuck with Paul. I think that did a lot to contribute. It wasn't long if you read the record of Scripture. Chapter number 7, Stephen is martyred. Chapter 8 is all about Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. Chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus gets born again by the grace of God. I think that thing never left him. And I think it was a big factor, a big element in Paul's conversion that he saw the realness of Christ, the power of Christ, the genuineness of Christianity in the dying face of Stephen the martyr. He says in verse number 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I like the word he uses. He says it's given. It's given in the behalf of Christ. Now, let me ask you a couple things. If something is given to someone, it's what? It's a gift. The things that belong to Christ... That are given to us. They're given how? They're given by grace. Has it ever dawned on you that your hardships could be a gift of grace? Paul says, man, it's a privilege that we might be able to walk in the footsteps of Christ. And that we might be able to identify with Him that as He suffered, we also suffer. Now, I know that's not a very earthly perspective, but remember, we're a heavenly people. From this world, that don't make a lot of sense. But from that world... That makes all the sense. That we would be privileged enough to suffer in His name. That's what the apostles said after they'd been arrested and beaten. They walked away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer in the name of Christ. Instead of complaining about somebody doing us wrong, maybe we ought to thank God that we're making enough of a difference that the devil had us in his targets. That we could suffer in the name of Christ. Notice verse 30, he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. He's given them exhortation, now he reminds them of the example. He says, you're not suffering alone. You've seen me suffer, and God sustained me. He goes down a laundry list of suffering in 2 Corinthians when he is defending his apostleship. And he talks about how he was beaten, you know, 39 times, save one, how he was shipwrecked, how he was a night and a day in the deep, how he faced the wild beast at Ephesus, how he had been betrayed, how he had been backstabbed, how he had been lied about, how all these things had happened. This is somebody they had seen suffer, but God had seen him through. And he said, even in this moment, you see suffering in my life. And he's not pointing to himself, but he's saying God has been all sufficient through my chains to 
preach the gospel, to use me for His glory. I just believe, it's going to sound funny to say, we think of Paul like a superhero. But I don't think that's what he would have looked like. You've heard the old, what is it, Dear Abby story or whatever it is, Paul Harvey or something about the church reading the, uh, the resume of a preacher for a prospective pastor and how he had been in trouble and he caused trouble and problems everywhere that he's been and how he had had, you know, prison record and this, that, and the other. And, of course, the, the catch is at the end of it, it's signed the Apostle Paul. And the pulpit committee wasn't interested because of all the baggage, but uh, it turns out it was the Apostle Paul. In the same way, if you take Paul's name off of his circumstances, he's a little diminutive, half-blind or completely blind Jewish man, broke down in body, Chained up in Rome. And I guess I would just say, if Paul, could, if God could use him in that situation, I know it sounds funny to say, but if God could use him in that situation, then surely whatever trials we're facing, God can use us.